Recovery Elevator, episode 188. I thought, okay, I, I know I don't want to die. And this has really woken me up to just how serious this is. And I've got to do something drastically different. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator Podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code opportunity to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Hey guys, this is a powerful episode. Today we have Tamara back on the podcast. I say back on the podcast because she was interviewed in episode 171. A few episodes ago, I mentioned there's really only one line we can cross that we can't come back from, and that would be death. It may seem like we can't pick up the pieces after the wreckage from our drinking, but if we quit drinking and stay sober, things usually fall back into place, oftentimes just by staying sober alone. But alcohol, alcoholism, addiction, the hamster wheel, the downward spiral, whatever you call it, can lead us to a place where the seemingly best option, after it feels that all other options have been exhausted, is death. Tamara and I both hit these points. I know Tamara's courage, honesty, and transparency will help a lot of people. This one in particular helped me a lot. I realized that I've talked about my suicide attempt in 2014, but I've never felt it. And during the interview... Those feelings made an appearance. Not just a, hey Paul, remember that one night type of thing? It all came. It faced value during the interview. Like a good chunk of the interview had to be edited out due to me. I didn't see it coming. But through Tamara's courage and honesty, I was able to feel those feelings, which had to happen. I've got a spectacular life right now. And it was almost cut short for both of us. So before we hear from Tamara, I want to include the National Suicide Prevention Number, and Mike will include this in the show notes. It's 1-800-273-8255. And if you get to that point, think of myself, Paul, think of Tamara. We are able to rebound on the other side and experience joy again. I promise you. Okay, now let's hear from Tamara. Tamara, how are you? I'm doing well, Paul. How are you today? Tamara, doing great. Thanks for asking. 
And listeners, if the name Tamra sounds familiar, it's because Tamra was interviewed in episode 171. Now, I do these interviews about three to four weeks in advance and possibly more at times. And there was an intro before Tamara. So we did the interview and she drank after the interview. And again, you know, Tamara's not the first interviewee to do this. And we're and she's back on the podcast today. We're going to talk about her journey since then, but I do a little intro to 171. So if you want to get more information about Tamara, her background and things like that, I encourage you to go back to 171 and listen to that. But we're going to pick up kind of where she left off and talk about the future. So Tamara, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. I'm in such a different place. And just to just so listeners are clear, it was not a premeditated decision to drink. I don't know that it ever is when we relapse. But man, just hearing you go through that background, it seems like, I mean, what a blast from the past. It seems like ages to go. And in reality, it was just 88 days ago. Yeah. And at the time of the previous recording, you had 48 days at the time of that recording. And now you have 88 days that we just said? That's correct. Yeah, nice job. Thank you. I'm really excited. I just mistakenly picked up my 90-day chip. I'm being all kinds of honest today. And I should tell you, Paul, I haven't so much prepared for this one. I remember last time I interviewed, I was so nervous. And I read through, like, studied all of your previous podcasts in detail, memorized questions, typed out all kinds of notes because I am a junkie when it comes to organization. Junkie's probably a bad word to use right there. But... (laughs) I am not prepared, so this should be interesting. If anything, it's going to be really honest and authentic, so we've got that going for us. We definitely do. And Tamara, give us a little background about the last two to three months in your life. Oh my goodness. Well, I'll start at the very beginning because Julie Andrews says that's a very good place to start. I So I drank on May 5th. There was no plan for it. I wasn't celebrating Cinco de Mayo. I had actually just moved into my new apartment in Nashville. I'm still there. And I was going through somewhat of a transition, but it was just, it was a rainy day. It was just like so many other days. And I should say that since I started my own sobriety journey back in October of 2017, I had, you know, built a network, but I still kept my sobriety and recovery, very compartmentalized from the rest of my life. Um, I had on the one side, sobriety, recovery, full steam ahead. And then on the other side, I was keeping all of the other plates spinning with my, my job for the most part, but just, you know, still trying to keep up appearances of the old camera and the old life I had built. So I really wasn't in the practice kind of along with that of leaning on my support system and recovery the way I see other people do really well and and how I've learned to do now. So, you know, when I get in those moments where I had negative emotions that I just have to sit in, I was still, even though I had the community, I think I was still really doing it alone. And that was a choice that I made. I was choosing to power through moments where I didn't feel so bad because to my own self, I thought, well, I don't want to drink. I haven't purchased anything. I'm not in front of a liquor store or a bar like, I want some alcohol. So I, I didn't want to, you know, some some of it was I didn't want to bo- bother people when, you know, there wasn't clear and present danger. But a lot of it was just pride. I didn't want my recovery to look bad either and be one of those, like, I didn't want to come off desperate or pathetic or weak. So May 5th was kind of like any other day. I had plans to check out. Uh, a big Nashville craft fair and it it got rained out and I started the day 
you know, running some errands. I bought a new bookshelf I was going to put together and I called my sponsor and had this awesome two hour long conversation with my sponsor where by the end of it, she was just talking about how well I was doing and being very encouraging and uplifting. And when I got off the phone with her, the strangest thing happened. I hung up the phone from that really high uplifting conversation. And I just immediately had this heart sinking, lonely, empty feeling. And I wanted to drink. And again, I thought I could power through it. Like I've I've wanted to drink before. I felt lonely and empty before. It had kind of become the theme of my life in sobriety. There was still some kind of hole I couldn't identify. Mm -hmm. And from there on, to be completely honest, I, I don't really know what happened as far as my thought process. I just went to the liquor store across the street, completely shut off my brain and went into autopilot mode. I bought a handle of vodka for the first time in quite a while. And I went home, I had just gotten a new roommate and her, her parents were in town helping her move in. So we had just like just met and started developing our relationship. So I, I didn't really know her very well, but they were on their side of the apartment kind of getting things settled. And I walked in, shut my door, hold myself up on my side of the apartment and started to drink. And for me, my history with drinking and especially the, the last part of the progression up up until last October when I chose to get sober, drinking and depression, depression slash anxiety went hand in hand for me. I drank in secret. I drank to forget all of the stress and pressure I was under. And I, I drank to cope, quite honestly. I mean, it's plain and simple as that. So I I did that. I just kept drinking. And the, the more I drank, per usual, the more depressed and anxious that I got. The only difference this time was it was completely hopeless, uh, more intense than I'd ever felt before. And by the time I was, you know, three quarters of the way through that handle of vodka by the end of the night, I just thought, I am doing all the right things here. I have tried everything I know to build my community, to work a program. I'm, I'm trying to get my gold stars and the 12 steps. I have a sponsor. I just effing talked to my sponsor for two hours. I just joined a church and a small group. I have a supportive family, a support system in Cafe RE. I have everything that I need, and I am still doing this. And that feeling, Paul, was I, I cannot describe to you how out of hope I was because I just thought, this is the way I'm always going to be. I'm no matter what I do, I'm clearly not in denial. I'm clearly not apathetic. I'm trying here. And no matter what I do, it's always going to come back to this point right here. And I'm always going to be this way. And I cannot keep living like this. And that's when the, the thought crept into my mind that had unfortunately become a familiar thought by the end of my previous drinking career um, I had begun to cut up my feet. And I've told you this, Paul, but I, you know, I chose my feet because it was a part of my body I could hide. And at that point, you know, I snuck out into the kitchen and got a knife, saw an open bottle of wine that my um, roommate and her family had been drinking the night before. There was like half the bottle left, took a big swig from their bottle of wine and just felt like I was the biggest piece of shit on the planet. And that's when the thought came into my mind, you know, why stop? At just cutting my feet. I, I can't keep living like this. I've exhausted all my options. The common denominator and in, in all of this is me. I'm the problem. And while I don't think that I really wanted to die, that seems like 
my best solution to the problem that I was experiencing on a continual basis. And I, you know, as, and I'm sorry that this is starting out on such a morbid note, but I just thought while I have the courage to, and, and while I'm just completely out of my mind, I'm going to act on this thought before I lose any of this drunkenness. And so I, I kept drinking. I believe I drank pretty much all of the bottle or the, the handle of vodka. I'm not sure. Uh, everything from that point on is obviously very fuzzy, but I do know that when I ended up in the ER later that night, my blood alcohol level was 0.374 so, or 0.324, something like something ridiculous um, in and of itself was a dangerous level. So I went into the bathroom and I apologize, listeners, earmuffs if, it, if it's too morbid, but I also don't want to sugarcoat just how ugly um, relapse can be and how horrific of an experience it can be. But I ran a bath and I quickly just got online and researched ways that I could bleed out by finding a vein. And because again, I hadn't premeditated this, I had no plan. And so I was trying to, in my drunken state, scramble together a plan. And then I decided, which ended up being the decision that saved my life. But I thought about my family and I thought, you know, it's going to be really horrible to send them a message, but I think that they're going to want some kind of explanation. Sorry, Paul. So I recorded a goodbye message to my mom and dad who live back in Arkansas where I'm from and to my little brother and his wife. And my little brother, if y'all know me, is my whole world. I just adore him and his wife, my sister. And I decided that I would you know, I didn't know how long it was going to take. So I would wait until I had acted before I sent the message. And then I got in the bath. I tried to make cuts on my feet and find a vein. I've since learned that heart rate and bleeding slows down tremendously when you're drunk. They told me that in the hospital. So that actually, ironically enough, ended up working in my favor, but wasn't getting any luck on my feet. So I went to try my left wrist it didn't work. And finally, I made a, a deep cut in my right wrist and immediately kind of freaked out a little bit because just blood started flowing. And I quickly sent the send button, hit the send button on my phone, and I went to sleep. And after I went to sleep, I'll try to piece this together because I've had my family, my family has rallied together and shown so much grace and strength in my life. And we've We've processed through what happened because I thought, Paul, that it was important for me to know what happened, but more importantly, for me to understand that their pain as well and for us to support each other as a family because the harsh truth of this and, and those of you who have experienced addiction and relapse especially, you know how, how many people it can affect and my family was very much uh, affected in that night and the weeks that followed. But after I sent the message, my parents called me and I vaguely remember my dad yelling and screaming. My mom went into full meltdown mode, but my dad was demanding that I give him my address and I kept refusing and said, you know, no, it's, it's done, dad. I've made up my mind and I, I'm okay with it. It's okay. And I ended up, I'm sorry to say, hanging up on my dad. And so my dad then called my little brother and, and Philly and his wife. And, and by this time, it was really late at night. So it's amazing they were even awake to, or that the phone ring woke them up. But what ended up happening is 
my dad, they had a phone tree going. My mom's phone had the paramedics in Nashville waiting for an address. And my dad was on the phone with my brother and my sister-in-law was talking to me. And she spent a few minutes just kind of calmly talking to me. And she figured out that my roommate was home and asked very calmly. She said, can you just yell out just your roommate's name and see if we can talk to her? And I did. And I I also vaguely remember my uh, roommate and her mom coming in. I remember them obviously being shocked and being the knife. And her mom was stopping the bleeding and she grabbed the phone. And what happened from there is they called the paramedics and my my sister-in-law told me something that sticks with me that I will never forget, not because I'm beating myself up with it, but because this is just the harsh reality of how painful these types of experiences can be for, for all of us. But there was a moment before the paramedics arrived where my sister-in-law and my brother heard my roommate's mom just yell, wake up, wake up, sweetie, wake back up. And they said they thought they were listening to their sister die. And hearing that obviously just is gut-wrenching to me. But thankfully, the paramedics got there. They saw the bottle and asked if I drank the whole bottle with me to the hospital. And from there, I just spent a few days in the emergency room and then three more (laughs) terrifying days in a mental hospital. And Paul, I know you were one of the people who was able through the through the hospital phone just to talk with me over those few days. And you can probably testify to my state of mind, but there was some numbness. I was very numb, not even embarrassed. I had zero pride and zero shame at that time. I didn't care who knew. I didn't care what people thought of me, um, which probably was one of the best things for me. Um, it was the first time I was just like, I, I just, I, I don't have anything left in me to give a care. I just don't. And I also felt optimistic in a weird way. I know that sounds strange to say, but I thought, okay, I, I know I don't want to die. And this has really woken me up to just how serious this is. And I've got to do something drastically different. So from there, I, once I got out of the mental hospital, I spent a few days just researching through through my sponsor, through the people in Cafe RE, my friends and family. And I found um, a treatment facility that had a bed for me in a treatment center just outside of St. Louis, Missouri. And I drove to St. Louis on a Friday, checked myself in and stayed there for four weeks. And I've been talking for a long time, so I can keep rolling with that. Or I don't know if there's something specific from there you want me to go into while I take a breath. Tamara, you, I'm glad, I'm glad you kept going. Um, sorry. We have, uh, oh, yikes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm supposed to be the leading the interview and keeping it all buttoned up myself, but and we've had, we've had plenty of laughter and there's a yeah there's there's amazing moments on this podcast of successes and we've got you know you got 88 days you jumped the gun early on your 90 day chip <laughs> but I'm glad you kept going there because yeah hey <laughs> god I had the same thing Tamara I tried to kill myself in September 2014 or August 2014 and it was so I yeah. just relive the moment through your words and I was there 
for every moment of it. And I felt emotions that I don't think I've felt since that happened. And <laughs> I remember looking up at the, the, the photo of my dog on the wall and I said the same things that you said. I said, fuck, I'm going to all these meetings. I'm reaching out to people. I've got this recovery community. Like, nothing is working. I can't beat this. And I finished the rest of the benzodiazepines, uh, the Xanax, like 12 of them, and all the other pills that I had in my drawer. And there was no message. I just said goodbye to my dog. And, fuck, yeah. I mean, that's that's where this can take us. And I didn't, I did not foresee this. <laughs> you know, I just thought it was, we're going to share your story, this and that. But there's like a... It was like, I'm having an emotional purge on my own. So this is a raw and authentic podcast. It is. It is. And it's bringing up emotions and emotions that have to be felt. But, uh, yeah, pick us up. Pick us back up where you left off. So you're at, you know, you're at the clinic. And uh, we, we chatted when you were at the, at the mental hospital. And, and, you were, you, and then you went to St. Louis, right? Is that where we're at right now? Yes, that's where we're at. And I also want to say um, – you know, I'm reliving it too. And just even 88 days after that, I know that's not a long time, but it feels like ages. I'm, spoiler alert, at a place where I have something so different than I've ever had in my life. And it's, it's the words that they talk about in the big book. And even though the 12 steps and the big book isn't, you know, the only thing I subscribe to, there's truth in the joy and the peace and the contentment that people talk about not only in AA, but just people who have attained that level of comfort that you just sometimes have to go to the deepest pits of darkness, unfortunately, to find. But reliving it, you know, I feel sadness, but it's it's not a bad kind of sadness, if that makes sense. It's just a reminder that, you know, I, I wasn't doing anything wrong, Paul. I, I, I didn't get there because I'm broken or there's something wrong with me. It's just that this is insidious and it's cunning and it's powerful. And there's a grave that's dug for us. That's just waiting. It's just waiting for us to get to that hopeless moment and just take us. Hey, Tamara, we, (laughs) we both almost crossed the line, pretty much the only line in sobriety where you can cross, but you can't come back. And you, like you just said, we both didn't do anything wrong. It's just where it almost took us. And I'm not staying sober out of fear that I might go back to that location. And I know you're not either. But, um, yeah, that's that's like a, not a bad thing to keep you back in your mind. Because I, when I play the tape forward, far enough forward, that's where I go. And I, I'm never going back there again. Yeah, and you nailed it right there. It's not out of fear. I'm I'm not sober because I'm afraid of where it can take me. I know now where it can take me. But... And I'm cautious of, I'm very mindful of that, but I'm sober today because there's life, (laughs) there's a life to live. And I didn't know what I was living for. I didn't know what I was missing and what I was living for. And when I spent time in treatment, you know, there wasn't anything magical or there weren't rainbows and unicorns. It was a beautiful place. And it was a combination of, you know, a substance lens, but also, mental health and talking about childhood trauma, that was probably the most beneficial part for me was just going through my life story and working through trauma. I was asked on the first appointment with my therapist that I was assigned, 
what kind of trauma have you experienced? And I remember asking her, what do you mean trauma? Like, I didn't know if my experiences classified me in the trauma category. And it, in hindsight, kind of makes me laugh. It's kind of a ridiculous question because as, as I started to go through my history and one of our projects was to write out our life story before we left. And as I wrote out my life story, it was trauma after trauma after trauma. And I just had this moment where I cried going, how could I not know? How, how did I bury that so deep that I had to ask the question, well, what do you mean trauma? And then when she told me, gave me a few examples, I said no, because I didn't think that my pain was important enough. I thought that I had just gotten over things that have happened to me because bad things happen to everybody, right? And while that's true, there's a big difference between truly processing and working through things and accepting them and moving on and just burying it and ignoring it. So I had done the latter and I was able to work through a lot of things. Uh, My family came in town for some family counseling as well. And the magical thing about the time I was in treatment was just that it was the time I had four weeks where I couldn't do what I had done before, which was to lean on my career or keep friendships and appearances spinning. It was just, I I was at a humble position. I was checked into inpatient rehabilitation for trying to kill myself and being addicted to alcohol. That's a really humble position to be in. And what that allowed me to do by all of that crumbling and my pride crumbling was to spend time finally for the first time in my life being able to see just how loved I was. And in a weird way, I felt like God allowing me to go through everything I've been through, not just what happened on the 5th, but everything preceding that moment was God's way of showing me how much he loved me. And I was able to see, like, he has been with me this entire time. I've had a purpose and I've had a life waiting for me my whole life. It's just taken me over 31 years to get to this point where things crumbled enough my distractions and the life I had built crumbled enough for me to be able to see it. And when I did, when I was able to recognize that, I saw that I was loved. I saw my value and worth. And I started to see myself the way God sees me and the way other people had been shaking me and trying to see me. And I really came out of hiding in that process. I thought, oh, these things that have happened to me aren't things that define me. I don't need to hide anymore. I don't need to hide my struggles, my weaknesses. I don't need to hide what might not look good to a crowd that I'm in or to a boss or to a friend. I need to, I am not going to live unless I am authentically me when I show up to the table with the good and the bad and the ugly because I'm worth having people in my life who accept me exactly the way I am. And so it wasn't It wasn't all roses and ponies and rainbows. It was really hard, but I basically had to rebuild the way I saw myself and my identity. And it was beautiful. I saw that I have a purpose and I'm not talking about a purpose in the sense of I'm supposed to go save the world or anything big. I just have a place in people's lives. I have a place on this earth that I want to live for. I, I want to come out of my shell and do the things that I meant to do and live my life out in the open. And I just spent so much time in hiding that I had become exhausted and I didn't know who I was. And a lot of that might sound like cliche mental health talk. Maybe it is, but that's the best way I know how to describe the way I felt. And I think that just because my mind was so open to, I I was very raw 
things had come crumbling down and my mind was so open, I was finally able to have, you know, what people talk about, what they describe as a spiritual experience. Mine was I was sitting out on uh, this bench outside uh, in front of a lake. It was a gorgeous day. It was my very last day in treatment. And it started to hit me like, whoa, I'm going home. And I started to feel a little bit uh, nervous about it, uh, excited, nervous. And I just was praying and meditating. And I, I was basically staying outside, out in the open to the sky. God, I'm ready. I am so excited. I don't know what is coming. I don't know what I'm going to do from here and what steps I'm going to take. I don't know how I'm going to rebuild my life from this low. But I know that I'm excited for it and I'm giving up all control. I, it was the first time in my life I really accepted and was grateful for the fact that I am not the orchestrator of every situation in life. I am not in control. Situations are going to happen all around me. I'm just still here standing and through, through all of it. And in that moment, I was expecting to feel compelled to like know my purpose and everything I'm going to do in life or at least have some idea. And all I heard back just very clearly, not in a physical voice, but just what I felt in my heart was, Tamara, just do the next right thing. Simple as that. Just do the next right thing. And right now, that's just to go home. And I kind of laughed because uh, my pastor had given me, he'd prayed over me and kind of given me this metaphor of a, a cocoon and a butterfly coming out of the cocoon. And in that moment, I saw a yellow butterfly float past. And I don't care if it sounds hokey to you or to anybody else. I just laughed because I thought, this moment is just for me. This is my moment. That's my yellow butterfly. (laughs) And I just knew everything was going to be okay. And I don't have to know two steps from now. All I have to do is the next right thing and not worry beyond that. Tamara, I know that you've made tremendous progress internally inside that that treatment facility and talk was because of your action of the letter you got just a couple of days before you left the treatment facility from your employer. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so it was actually a couple of weeks into treatment and I had battled, truthfully I battled staying put. My first week I powered through again. <laughs> and I thought, I know I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why this path has led me to this specific treatment center or why I'm here. You know, I kept asking, but what's the plan? Like, what am I going to get out of this? How is this going to keep me sober? And I had an element of trust, though, and faith that what I was doing was at least I was taking steps. I was doing something different. And I was just going to, for the first time, be open to see where it takes me. But I struggled staying. About a week was where I capped out on pretending like I was okay with that. And I chose to be here. I checked myself in. And after about a week, I realized, I'm just like everybody else. I don't want to be here. I want to be out living life. I want to be okay. And I made the decision to stay. But one thing that was so hard for me is that last thing that I was still holding on to so tightly was my job. And I had been feeling for some time a little bit out of place. Like it was just the wrong kind of pressure for me. And I was still fighting to really fit into that world that's so buttoned up, so together, very conservative. We serviced a lot of faith-based clients. And even though it wasn't a pressure that my job put on me overtly, it was one that I took on and internalized and thought that I had to meet certain expectations appearance-wise. And I was still hanging on to that and really struggling to figure out, okay, I know things are going to be different, but I still feel like I need to rebuild my life around this job. It was as if 
everything else in my life like had been demolished for the sake of renovation, but that one last piece was still standing and it had a very distinct look, a very distinct structure. Like rebuild around a a professional role. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like rebuild around that role. I would have continued to make that work and go back to Nashville, go back to that job as quickly as I could. And it was, it was like, okay, everything else can be, you can touch everything else. I'm, I'm open to changing everything else, but that one thing I still need to hang on to because it was that important to me. And some of it was just stubbornness. I wanted to believe that I could still fit into that world despite every, every step I had walked and everything that was wrong with me. I was still able, I wanted to prove that I could still do that job and come back stronger and do it even better than I had before. And my boss and I had a very open relationship. She was on the list of people to call. She called my parents. I couldn't um, talk on, I couldn't have my cell phone when I was in the hospital. And I was on blackout when I was in treatment and couldn't talk to anybody. But she had asked for the address to maybe send me a care package and had called every day while I was in the hospital to talk to my family and had put me on 30 day short term leave and indicated to my family that you know, she really wanted me to get the, the help that I needed and not blow through it, but really be diligent about taking the time I needed to get better. So she was very supportive in that respect. And so two weeks into treatment, I got a FedEx. And the previous week, I knew that my, my whole team had been on an all-inclusive trip to Mexico that I had been planning to go on. And so I was already excited to, you know, hear how that went. And I, I thought I was getting a care package. And instead, I opened the FedEx, and it was a letter of termination that my 30-day medical leave, once that ended, that effective that day, I no longer had my job. And when I got that news, it was the most raw sadness. I felt blindsided. I felt in that moment, like everything had crumbled. Officially, everything had crumbled. And I I took it into my therapist's office and I just sat on the floor and, and everybody was silent. I just sat on the floor crying for, I don't know how long, but just crying. And my therapist was almost not enjoying herself, but was just really happy that I was actually crying (laughs) and actually expressing the emotions that I was feeling because I was, I was incredibly hurt. I was brokenhearted. Like my heart broke when I got that news because these weren't just coworkers. It was a work family and they were women that I really cared about and had relationships with outside of work. And after I cried and cried, I went on a walk and on that walk, I started like laugh crying and just like looked up and I, I just said, God, thank you thank you for crumbling this because I could see um, and feel like I could actually feel it, how that's exactly what needed to happen. I had to have everything crumble and rebuild completely from scratch without hanging on to a, a part of me and an expectation I had for myself to hang on to my old way of doing things. And it was, I, I really believe that that was just a gift from God. Like, nope, we're not going to rebuild around that. We're going to rebuild everything. And I saw it as just a big opportunity. Still very hurt about it and, you know, had to come to terms with what that meant for those relationships that I had built and, and was able to, you know, have a conversation with my boss when I got back to Nashville and just kind of to let things out and open and understand her thought process and what 
what she was going through and the uncertainty that she was feeling just having me in that position and thinking about what that meant for her business and for her team and how it was a reflection on the company that she was trying to build. So it wasn't all pretty, but it was, I'm convinced, I have no doubt in my mind that it was a a big gift for me. Tamara, I'm a firm believer that we cannot do this alone, that we need an external community to help us get sober and to stay sober. But at the end of the day, it all lies within. And through this whole journey, if I'm hearing you correctly, that's where you went. And you mentioned everything around you crumbled, including at the end of the treatment facility center, you got the, the FedEx package from your work. And that was the best thing. You already said it. That was the best thing that could have ever could have happened because you were already about to redefine your role, the ego role, attached to this professional role, which is not sustainable. And so it sounds like you found that light within and just with internally, you had no other place to go while inside this treatment center. And you found something that can never be taken away from you. Talk to you. Talk to us more about that. I mean, I don't know how I could say it any better. Something that could never be taken away from me. It was it was this sense of no matter what happens around me, it's not happening to me to the extent that it has to wreck my world. I'm still standing no matter what. I'm still standing. And losing that job was one of the most empowering things that could have happened to me. I, I felt like leaving the treatment center, like life is just this big, wide open space and it's mine. And now I get to, for the first time in my life, rebuild my life in a way that's authentic and is right for me, not around the life that I had in my head that I thought I needed in order to be happy and in order to be accepted by other people. It was from here on out between me and God, it's just us. And I'm just going to do the next right thing on a continual basis. And that is exactly where I want to be for the rest of my life. And I'm excited because I'm going to have this side by side picture of here's what my life looks like after 31 years of me being in charge. And here's what my life is going to look like years later down the road. I'm going to be able to look back and go, here's what it looks like when I'm living the life I'm meant to live. And I built my life around things that are true to me. And as we said, you found something that can never be taken away from you because you realized you've had it the entire time. I have. It's always, and I, you know, I, I talk a lot about God because that, that's the form that, that like my soul and my heart uh, feels that. But I have this sense that God, I've been loved this entire time. I haven't felt it. I have not for sure loved myself. But what I have that cannot be taken from me is the love from him and a purpose for my life. I have that. Nobody can take that from me. And we, I, I really believe, Paul, that we all have that. It's just a matter of things need to need to fall that are in the way of us grabbing that. And that's what was so frustrating leading up to May 5th is I, especially because I was doing the right things and surrounded by a great community of people both in recovery and out of recovery, it was like they had something and I saw it. It was like I was watching it happen right around me and it was right there. I just couldn't grab it. I felt like I couldn't grab it. And in treatment, I was, after that experience, I was finally able to have that wall down between me and that thing that can never be taken from me. And I was able to grab it. And Tamara, from what I'm hearing through your story, and you brought tears to my eyes. I relived my, the depths of my, you know, my, my drinking where my journey took me. I'm hearing, this is like a full spiritual awakening. Am am I right on that? You're absolutely right. And I'm hesitant to get uber spiritual on people because 
I by no means want somebody to take my experience and go, oh, we need to clone it and that has to be my experience to get to that point. That's not true. The beautiful thing about humanity is we are all wired differently. We are all uniquely our own individuals. But my spiritual experience was sitting there outside and being overjoyed and honored to relinquish control of my life and take the keys, take the reins, whatever I was holding and give it over to God. And that's been the most freeing and liberating feeling because, and and I hate to say feeling because that feelings are, you know, just one aspect of it. It's been the most liberating form of existence because I know that those pressures I was shouldering, those uh, pressures from trying to figure things out and trying to do all the right things and trying to predict my own future, that's not something I have to shoulder anymore. All I have to do is the next right thing as as it's presented to me and walk that path the best I can in faith that the next one's going to be clear to me after I do this first step. And the rest, I get to just give up to the control of my higher power and give that to God and know that I don't have to be responsible for that anymore. Now, comment a little bit on religion and spirituality. In my opinion, they're two totally different things. Does somebody need to be religious to have a spiritual awakening? Absolutely not. You know, and I've I've had this conversation a lot lately because, you know, people ask, are you Christian? And I've just come to, it's hard for me to go, like I grit my teeth and go, I mean, yes, but I hesitate to say yes, because while I believe in, you know, my higher power is God, and um, I, I believe that the reason I have this love is because Christ showed the ultimate example of what it's like to experience pain. That was like our gift from God to go, look, I'm, I know I'm God, but I'm not just up here in the heavens, like somewhere that you have to like make a reach to believe in. I understand this human existence of what it's like to go through the ultimate pain and love you enough to go through that pain and experience all of the pain that you've walked through so that you know how much I love you and can relate to you. But I was religious, Paul, for my whole upbringing. I had a very punitive understanding of who God is and what religion is, that you have to be good enough, you have to pray enough, you have to go to church enough, you have to read your Bible enough, you have to do do things to earn love. I had a very achievement-oriented vision of love, and that's how I was raised. I, The more straight A's I got, the more Bible verses I memorized, the more I sing in church— the more I felt loved by and accepted by my family. And I translated that into adulthood. I was trying to achieve my way into earning people's love and God's love. And I went through a long period in adulthood where I, I guess I believed in God. I mean, I did. I thought, you know, I never questioned the truth of a higher power and something greater than me, but I never was able to access it and access the peace and joy that other people were talking about. I was grabbing it all of the outward manifestations of that, thinking that that would get me access to it. But religion is a practice. It's doing things. Religion is, to me, an outward expression. Spirituality, it is all about me inside. It is all about me and making myself a better person. And through my faith in God and giving up control, realizing that I am not the most important thing in this world And situations are not for me to orchestrate or drive. I'm just here to be obedient and and do my part in this world and my own life. That is spirituality to me. It is a very inward 
expression and it translates on the outside. You know, I'm, I'm able to finally love on people the way I always wanted to and, and tried to by, you know, giving gifts or cooking for them or doing outward things because I felt love for them. But now I'm able to, you know, do outward things. Like I, I love, I love genuinely having conversations with people and encouraging them. I love, I still love cooking for people. I love just humbling myself and sharing what I've walked through so that people know they're not alone, but that all comes from spirituality. It has nothing to do with religion. And Tamara, what advice would you have for someone that's, that's struggling? Like we, we both went through that where was the, we, we got to the point where nothing is working. What advice would you have for somebody in that same situation right now? It starts with openness. You have to be open. I thought I was open, but I wasn't. I was frustrated. <laughs> I mean, I was open. I'm not going to knock myself because, again, I don't think I did something wrong. But look at the people in your life, and they exist. Open your eyes and look at the people in your life who have something that you think you want. And be open to hearing what they're doing and what they've walked through. And just hum- humble yourself enough to be open to the fact that somebody else is in control, that some, th- some other force in this world, love, belonging, connection, God, whatever form that takes on for you, whatever that inner pulling is that you feel, be open to exploring that because we all have something that pulls us, whether that's connection, whether that's the belief that, you know, across the world we're we're all bonded by, you know, our pain and our love for one, like the desire to be loved. Lean into that and just open your mind. A closed mind is not, if you have tunnel vision, you're probably going to be headed down the same path like I was for so many years. You've got to open your mind to being wrong and being, not even being wrong, to being, not seeing the full picture. Open your mind to maybe that you're not seeing the full picture yet. And that is not your fault. It's just that there's something more out there or something in the way for you to tear down that will enable you to see a bigger picture. And whatever that is, I don't think, I don't think it's church. I don't think it's even reading your Bible. If that's your entry point, great. But whatever it is, try something. We have, there's a whole physical, physiological and mental aspect to to all of this that I can't really weigh in on as an expert. Uh, I could try, but I'd totally mess it up. But our brains are wired like this and things, things are off. Things are off. And for something to get right, you've got to be open to trying something else. And I've heard, that's why I'm so interested, Paul, in hearing other people's stories and what their path was that led them to a spiritual experience, because it's different for everybody. I've heard of people finding it through yoga and meditation, and they have a spiritual experience. There's some people finding it at ayahuasca retreats, and that rewires something in their brain and opens up their brain and their soul to experiencing something. Whatever it is, you've got to be open to finding it. And Tamara, with 88 days of sobriety, what's next? Oh, what's next is one day at a time. The best, <laughs> the best thing I can say and the most exciting thing about this is I don't know what's next. I have no idea what's next. I know what I'm doing tonight, and I know some plans I have in the immediate future. But what's next is that I'm going to continue to embrace this spiritual um, awakening that I've had, and I'm going to continue to grow in that. And I don't know where it's going to take me. I have no idea, and that's the most exciting thing. And Tamara, 
I'd like to say thank you so much for opening up and sharing your story with us. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? One thing I want to add that I think I missed, and again, this is through my heart and my own experience, but I am a firm believer that people are just God's greatest creation. I think that people are my favorite thing about this life. If you are struggling, I know we talked about a lot of things, but if there's one thing that all of us can pretty much agree on, it's that we can't do this alone. Reach out to people. Some conversations might not take you anywhere profound, but just reach out to people. Listen to what they've walked through. Let them share it with you if they're open and just reach out. For sure, if you're in a low moment or going down a path that, that's really dark, reach out to people. People are not going to judge you, and if they do, who cares? Your life depends on it. So if you are heading down a bad path, I would just encourage people. I can't say enough good things about the people who are around you. They're there for a reason. Let them in on what you're going through. And Tamara, I hung out with you in Dallas. I can't wait to hang out with you again in Peru in two months and 10 days. Thank you for joining us on the oh podcast today. Thank you, Paul. Bye. And before we depart, we're going to end things on the lighter side a little bit. A new article indicates that Mixing vodka and Red Bull is a popular concoction for those trying to stay alert while drinking. Also popular for those who wish to be interviewed on the Recovery Elevator podcast in the near future. However, a new study published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research suggests this potent mix compounds the effects of heavy drinking and increases the risk of fighting, violence, and participation in risky behaviors. In other words, a bunch of vodka Red Bulls turns people into belligerent Brads and Chads. Apart from just posting up the Marquee nightclub in Las Vegas and witnessing this firsthand in person, which I've done at my fantasy football draft year after year, well, they did it with fish. The University of Santa Maria in Brazil used 192 zebrafish. Yep, zebrafish. They found out that zebrafish exposed to both alcohol and taurine displayed a more risky behavior and had fewer social interactions with other fish. Let me summarize that whole study with three words. Alcohol is shit. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Uh-huh.